If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Hebrews. Otherwise, the passage is in your bulletin and it should be displayed on the wall in just a moment. This morning's a special morning because we conclude the book of Hebrews. Uh, we will now finish this morning the last five verses of chapter 13. And so just in the way of recapping what we have seen in these months behind us, we have seen that the author of the letter to the Hebrews has sought to demonstrate how Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater than angels, than prophets, than priests. He is greater than everything. In Jesus, He has said, we have a better word. We have a better sacrifice. We have better blood. A better covenant. We're made to be part of a better family. We have a better altar. Better worship. Better sacraments. And He says that we are heirs of a better city whose architect and builder is God Himself. Now, as we approach these last five verses of chapter 13, there's one more thing He wants to demonstrate about how Jesus is better, about how Jesus is greater for these Christians. And it is really good news for them. And it's really good news for us. The author is going to introduce a new term that he has not mentioned in his entire letter. And he is going to use, in doing that, a very familiar term to the rest of the Bible. And that good news in that term is that Jesus is better, He is greater than any shepherd the world has ever known. He calls Him the great shepherd. He is the greatest shepherd. So as we conclude this letter and the public reading of it, if you're able, let's do something a little bit different. Let's stand and hear the good news and let's read as you hear as I lead from Hebrews chapter 13 verses 20 and 25. Please stand. Listen to the good news about a great shepherd. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but it's the Word of our God that stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, would You bless now Your Word as we seek to apply it to our lives. Lord, would You be our teacher, our blesser, our equipper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 35 weeks. 35 weeks. That's how long we have looked at the letter to the Hebrews, which is itself a sermon. A sermon that can be read between 45 minutes to an hour, depending on on how fast you would read the book. But because Hebrews is so dense with history and theology, it's filled with imagery, and you've heard that it's had some pretty stark warnings, some sobering warnings. It's taken us 35 weeks to take the pieces of that, to chew on that, and to try to apply what this author taught them. And we gain in verse 22 of chapter 13 the author's own understanding of what this book is, what this letter is. And you've heard me refer to it constantly as a sermon letter. And the reason that I think it's that and other people think it's that is how in verse 22 he says, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. Okay, That's key language. That's important language. We know what an exhortation is. An exhortation is communication that emphatically urges someone to do something. And that's what he's done throughout this letter. He has exhorted them to do what? To persevere in the faith. To persevere in faithfulness of the faith. And so what we learn from sermons, what we learn from this author about what a sermon should be, is this. A sermon, according to how he defines it and uses it, it should tell us what is true, and it should tell us what to do, what God would have His people do. What is true and what to do. Now, we're living in an era that has some new expectations for preaching, right? We want to be made to feel a certain way. We want our ears to be tickled. Sometimes we want to be entertained, right? But I I remind us and myself that as a sermon is defined here in Scripture itself, it's to tell us what's true and what God would have us do. Now, you've worked through Hebrews, if you've been with us, these 13 chapters, what we have divided as chapters, and ask yourself, now why did it take Pastor Paul 35 weeks to go through this? It really was dense. It was heavy. It was weighty with so much content. And how many times did the author of the letter to the Hebrews try to stir their feelings? He brought content. He brought substance. And so sermons should be substantial. And so when we live in an era that wants uh, our feelings to always be aroused in one way or another, the truth is what we need is we need the substance of what God says in His Word It's helpful when it's applied and and illustrated to our ears. But we need the meat and potatoes of God's Word to fortify us, to strengthen us. As my campus minister used to say, sermonettes 
are for Christianettes. We don't need little sermons for little Christians. We need meat and potatoes of God's Word. And so that's why we spent 35 weeks chewing on the different sections of what he said. And we could have gone more than 35, but, but 35 was enough. Okay, four things in this passage this morning. There are four pieces to this that I want to emphasize. And they're simply this. Number one, the benediction that it contains and what that is. Number two, doxology what that is and what that means. And then a comment of personal interest that the author makes that I think tells us something about his pastoral heart. And then final remarks, his closing word to these people he has cared so much for. So those are the four things taken from these five verses. So first, benediction. Benediction. Benediction means good word or good speech. Benedictus, right? And so for us, the benediction is a pronounced blessing of a good word. It's a pronounced blessing. Now, this appeared for God's people for the first time in Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 to 27. Listen to this as it describes what a benediction would be from a priest to the people of God. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, Aaron was the priest, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. And then the Lord says, So they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. The Aaronic blessing, that's where it came from. And if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you know that this language of benediction is it's all in the New Testament. Twenty times... Books have blessings and benedictions in them. And it's very much like what we just read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. And you may have noticed that for about the past year, um, we've, we've put a little different emphasis on the benediction here at the close of our worship service to remind us of what we heard from God's Word that was true and how that should affect us as we go out the doors what we should do, what is true, what we should do, and that God's blessing would be on us to give us success in being able to do that. That is the nature of a benediction. That is the blessing. Now, you'll go home from church today, and, and you may say the blessing at your lunch, at your meal. Similar, but a very different thing. Those are prayers of thanksgiving where you might ask the Lord to bless the recipients of that meal with good health and good strength and with thankful hearts. But this priestly blessing and what's modeled here in the epistles, at the close of epistles, uh, with a pronounced blessing on God's people, that is a very special element and gift that God has given distinctly to His church. And so we want to know what it is, and we want to receive it, and we want to benefit from it. So about that benediction, listen to it again. Uh, first verses 20 and 21. 
Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ. That's the blessing. That's the benediction. And there are a few things to highlight out of that. The first is the who of benediction. Well, he says it's the God of peace who is the blesser. He calls Him the God of peace. On this, Rick Phillips says in his commentary on Hebrews, he says, the Bible proclaims that apart from the grace of God, apart from the Holy Spirit drawing a person to faith in Christ, the heart is self-serving, self-deceiving, and a self-destroying monster. Yet through Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews has real hopes for his readers to experience God's good and pleasing will. Why? Because the author appeals on their behalf to the God of peace, whom the author knows is seeking peace with them and is offering it to the world, though the world is at war with him. God is the author of peace. He's the architect of peace. He offers peace through His Son to a people who are monsters and to a world that is in conflict. But He's the God of peace. And the author of Hebrews, who has had some pretty stern words for these people, he appeals to the God of peace to bless these people because he knows that's the only way it will happen. That's how it works. Sinners have to appeal to the God of mercy for His peace to deal with our sin-ruined messes. And that's what he does pastorally for these people. He appeals to God on their behalf. Now, how does God bring this peace? By what means does peace come into this world and to His people? He says it's through the blood of the eternal covenant, which is what he has highlighted throughout his letter. He is wrapping back around here to the same covenantal idea about bloodshed and priesthood and that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. It's the blood of the eternal covenant and his bringing back the Lord Jesus from the dead. That is what has secured the peace of God. That is what paid the price and made it happen. And he says it's real. And I appeal to that, he says, for you on your behalf. May the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. And he's, he's pouring that blessing on these people. Well, why would God have such a peacemaking heart and be willing to do something so drastic as He did in purchasing the redemption of sinners? It's because the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, is what we can best understand as the heart of a shepherd. And not just any shepherd, not a lazy shepherd, not a worthless shepherd, but what he calls the great shepherd. The shepherd who does not fail. The shepherd who is perfect. 
Now, a word about shepherds. You, you know some about shepherds. You may know a lot about shepherds, but shepherds are keepers. They're providers. They're protectors. And a word about sheep. It's not good. Everything about a sheep is desperation, in need of help. And so that's the picture and the imagery that the author gives, that we have a great shepherd for sheep. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own selfish way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Beautiful imagery. This is the first time he's using that language in that term, but it's very familiar biblical language. It's all in the Old Testament. Jesus used it of himself in the Gospels. Now, if this was a modern sermon uh, written in a modern day at a contemporary seminary, he actually would lose points for bringing up a new term and a new image at the end of the sermon. You're not supposed to do that. That's how we're taught. Well, he does it, and it's just the last pearl in this long thread, this necklace of all these beautiful statements and images and actions of what the Lord Jesus has done, what God has done through Jesus to purchase sinners from their sinfulness. A word about those sheep. Horatius Bonar says it best, that hymn we've sung before, I was a wandering sheep. Listen to what he says. Jesus, my shepherd, is. Twas he that loved my soul. Twas he that washed me in his blood. Twas he that made me whole. Twas he that sought the lost, that found the wandering sheep. Twas he that brought me to the fold. Tis he that still doth keep. We are wandering sheep, but we have a faithful shepherd in the Lord Jesus. We have the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, a word about that great shepherd. Jeff Robinson says, Jesus is the great shepherd of his church. Pastors are the under shepherds of Christ's church. Pastors are called and equipped by him for ministry, but he is the hero. He is the champion. And He is to be the center of all attention. Christ promises to build His church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So whether ministry efforts seem to bear fruit or not, we trust that God is at work. He demonstrates His power through human weakness. He builds His church through the spiritual atomic bomb that is the gospel. And he does so by means of weak clay pots. That's how it works, and all glory be to him. Amen? We have a great shepherd, and we are sheep. And the only good thing about being a sheep is if you have a great shepherd. Otherwise, you're in a lot of trouble. But we have that great shepherd. That shepherd in a job description, as defined by the author of Hebrews, is to keep and to equip the sheep. 
And this is what he says at the end of verse 21. He says that our great shepherd is the equipper, the one who gives everything good for doing his will and working in us what is pleasing to him. Did you catch that? That's a packed little statement. He says that God is the equipper and may he give you everything good, which really resonates with Psalm 23, which we read earlier. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or literally, I lack no good thing, meaning I have what God has given me and my needs will be met by Him. That's the same sentiment that the author of Hebrews is resonating with. And he gives us everything we need for doing His will, which resonates with the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. That's what we always pray. Thy will be done. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And he works in us. May he work in us that which is pleasing to him. Not to us, but to him. And that's our belief of God at work, accomplishing his purposes, which are always Always good. That's what is captured in the benediction, the good word spoken to God's people. We're asking Him to do this work in us by His word and by His spirit. And as the great shepherd of the sheep, He alone can do it. And He promises that He will. Now, at the end of that benediction, He suddenly bleeds into a doxology. Listen again to verse 21, the end of verse 21. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that is a doxology. A doxology is that expression of praise for the glory of God. And you may also know that in our church in the past year, we have also brought new attention to the use of a doxology, where we all stand and we praise God for everything He is and for all that He has done. That's doxology. This is doxology as it's captured there. And it's important to note that this benediction and this doxology blend together into a word. One commentator said, that is like the secret recipe in the Christian life that too many of us are not understanding. And what he said, what he mentioned was this. We want God to bless us. God bless me. Make me successful. May I have all my needs and all my wants. But the call for benediction, apart from the purpose of doxology, that God would glorify himself through this, that's a truncated equation that does not compute according to Scripture. But the Christian says, Lord, bless and provide that you may be glorified that you may be honored. And that together is the recipe that works in the Christian life. Too many of us are looking to be satisfied apart from the glory of God. But they go together in one equation. When we pray and ask for something, it's to be for the glory of God, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. What, what is the chief end of man? to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's that second part of the equation. You can't enjoy God 
unless you're glorifying Him. And so there's much to learn here from the way that he is concluding his letter to these Christians who he's seeking to encourage them. Get the recipe right. Don't have a missing ingredient in your recipe of the Christian life. Some of you could tell stories. You've got family recipes that have passed down and maybe grandma didn't write it all out. She left out a, an ingredient. And you can't make it the same as grandma because she forgot to put that special ingredient in there. Ingredients matter. And the equation God has given us is benediction and doxology go together. That's where enjoying God will be found. Thirdly, he makes a comment of personal interest in verses 22 to 23. He shows family affection and some frank speech. Listen to this again. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. And I think what's important to note here is this brotherly affection he continues to communicate. Now in the NIV, you notice it said brothers and sisters, right? And I've commented on this in previous weeks. Literally, it's brothers, but so that no one would feel left out or offended, we've added and sisters. But the same concept is there for brothers. We are all brothers in Christ. We are one family. And that's the kind of affection that he's capturing for these people that he's had a hard word to speak to. And it's kind of family speech. It's very frank. They've talked like a family, and he's talking affectionately to them as family, but he's talking frankly too. You remember he has said some very hard things to them. In my family, we will have what we call family meetings, which means you yell out family meeting and everybody knows, uh-oh, dad's got something to say, right? So we come together as a family, and that's where Frank's speech is going to happen, Right? Who left the car door open all night in the carport, right? Um, frank speech happens in a family of close-knit people. It has to. But there's tenderness. There's family affection as well. And he has modeled this. And he's shown personal interest that, hey, we all care about Timothy. And I hope to come and see you, right? So don't discard my letter. I might show up and you might see me. And then he has these comments... In his final remarks, verses 24 to 25, let me just read those again. Listen to the, the, the kind and thoughtful spirit as he concludes his letter. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Now he has talked about these leaders twice, I think it is, in the letter previous to this. And he's told them recently, listen to your leaders, respect your leaders, for God is using them to lead and to direct. And now he's letting them know, you talk to your leaders, acknowledge them, let them know that I send my greetings. So he's personal. He takes a personal interest in the people that he's talking to. He is pastoral in nature. But then probably the nugget in this text uh, that has washed by me the most until this week. 
is the reference of the Italians. The Italians are in the passage. Listen to that again. Those from Italy send you their greetings. And that kind of washes right by us unless you stop and you think about it for a moment. God's gospel has spread. People are coming to faith and being made a part of the church that historically you would not have seen that coming. But God is at work. Everything He had promised about calling a people to Himself and His promise, His covenant, extending to include the nations. It's happening. It's really happening. It is an international church that we are a part of. And you see that just in that little comment. The Italians. God is at work. He's growing His church. The Gospel is going forth. Lives are being changed. Families are being changed. And the numbers are growing. Because God is at work. And then his final comment is a word of grace, and it too is a, is a benediction. It's a simple little benediction. And what he offers them is what they need the most in order to persevere in faith, to not abandon Jesus, to not go back to uh, the sacrifices of the Old Testament system. What they need is grace. And functioning in a pastoral and priestly-like role, that's what He offers them. He says, grace be with you all. Small little sentence, but packed with everything that these people needed. And you know, it's packed with everything that you and I need. It's the grace, it's the mercy of God applied to us, made real. That's what He's offering He offers it to them, and we believe by faith, God offers that same peace to us. The same grace, the same mercy, the same peace. It is a beautiful thing. So in conclusion, tie it all together like this. There is a great shepherd of the sheep. He is great in every way. But the pressing question for these original recipients of the letter to hear. And the pressing question for you as we conclude the letter is this. Can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? That's the question for every individual to hear this morning. Can you honestly say, the Lord is my shepherd? Or are you left to say, the Lord is the shepherd of my parents. The Lord is the shepherd of my siblings. The Lord is the shepherd of my teacher, my coach, my employer, my neighbor. Fill in the blank. It is not enough for the Lord to be the shepherd of someone else. By faith, can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? The way that Psalm 23, that we can use as an assurance of pardon. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Can you say this morning, the Lord is your shepherd? If you can, there's a beautiful hymn we're going to close with. And if you can't say it, maybe you can sing it by faith and believe it for the first time. Now, this is a version of Psalm 23. It's an archaic version, so it's going to be worded a little bit differently. It's going to say, the king of love my shepherd is. But it's all the content of Psalm 23. 
but to a different versification. But that's my prayer. As we close this letter, this pastoral letter to people that God has given us in His Holy Word, that's the question for every one of us to have pressed on us. Can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? By faith you can. By faith you can believe. And we can persevere in that faith through whatever comes to us because we have a great shepherd. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, that is our prayer and my prayer for your people is that we would know you by faith as our own personal shepherd. Not as somebody else's shepherd, but as our own. So Lord, even if for the first time as, as we lift up our voices in song, would you, would you show us, would you warm our unbelieving hearts and our stubborn and doubting hearts to trust you as the great Shepherd of the sheep. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.